This is an Odyssey original. This is KDX in Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Wildfires linked to dementia risk. We'll go in depth into the findings of a new study. More people are getting rid of their home insurance. We look into whether it's a great way to save money or a financial disaster waiting to happen. At a right-wing law enforcement group that challenges federal law is gaining momentum across the country. By the way, a quick programming note, as we mentioned, I think, the other day. Tomorrow, we'll have a special KNX in-depth as uh, L.A. Mayor Karen Bass is going to join us here in studio at uh, 1 o'clock sharp. So uh, be here. We start, though, today with a University of Michigan study that links a pollutant found in wildfires to dementia risk. Dr. Dale Bredesen is a neuroscience researcher and neurodegenerative disease expert. I had a feeling I would trip that up. <laughs> yeah, so, I saw it coming, yeah. and I thought, I'm not going to screw and that you up. Can't and avoid I, it. I did yeah. it anyway. Yeah, there so there, yeah. there you go. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Charles and Rob. So tell us about this study, because, of course, those of us who live in Southern California, indeed in many other parts of the country, but certainly here, we are no... Uh, strangers to uh, wildfire and smoke. And uh, this issue about a possible link to dementia has got to be extra troubling. Absolutely. This is an important point. And all of us in California exposed to the wildfires and, of course, on the East Coast with the Canadian fires. This is a big issue. This study followed 27,000 people for 10 years, people who are 50 and and older, and, and showed that it increased risk for specific associations. So what had been known before was the quantitative aspect. That is to say, people who have high exposure to these PM 2.5, these tiny particulate matter particles, increase risk for dementia. What this showed was the qualitative aspects. What's the source of these things? And they looked at even coal burning, for example. They looked at various cars, traffic, and but as you pointed out, the the, top, the ones that came out on top, number one, wildfires, and and number two was agriculture, uh, and so it, you know th- these seem to be worse than even things like coal burning. So you know what it tells all of us is, if fires are coming up, if if you're exposed to these, you need to you know get those windows and doors closed. You need to get that HEPA filter going. You need to get that KN95 mask on. You need to avoid this and. You need to do appropriate things to detox these, which are things like high fiber diets and and increasing glutathione levels and things like that. It sounds so like it, it sounds like you need to move is what it sounds like. Well, you know, it's hard to move because what if you move to a place that then has a fire? I mean, that's the tough part. Fires can come up anywhere. Yeah. So uh, do we understand the mechanics of uh, of this link? Uh, something to do with uh, what happens in the lungs uh, affects the brain? It's a great point, and there may be several mechanisms. Uh, one of them may be changes in SpO2, which is oxygen saturation. And it's well known, for example, that when we all sleep at night, if we we drop our oxygenation, which may happen with things like undiagnosed sleep apnea or with something called upper airway resistance syndrome, then in fact, we do increase our risk for dementia. So there may be changes just in the oxygenation. But beyond that, as you alluded to, there may be other things like toxic association. So, you know, there are toxins carried by these particles as well. Of course, there are also going to be changes in your carbon monoxide level. It's a little bit like uh, smoking, that sort of thing. So unfortunately, there are multiple mechanisms that contribute to your risk for cognitive decline. Do we know the specific chemicals we're talking about? 
Well, there's a whole host of them, and from as you know, from fires, um, there are you know uh, nitric uh, nitric oxides, things like that, nitrogen dioxides. Uh, there are uh, you know carbon monoxides um, as well as carbon dioxide, as well as as I mentioned, you know potential effects on your oxygenation. But I have not been aware. This is the first study that actually went into the qualitative aspects. What are the ones that bother you? Now the next step will be the answer to your question. Why is it? that the fires and the agriculture were worse than the coal burning and the traffic and things like that. So that'll, that's a, it's a very good question. All right, Dr. Uh, Dale Bredesen, thank you, a neuroscientist researcher and neurodegenerative disease expert. I got through it, Charles. Well, I don't know. You kind of I, fudged I, it a little bit. I slurred bit. a little bit. There's a little bit of slurring. But here's the difference. You, yeah. you crashed into the wall yeah. and I just kind of sideswiped it. Still ahead, momentum is picking up on the idea that maybe, uh, maybe local sheriffs should not enforce certain laws. You're going to talk to the founder of a right-wing group pushing this controversial idea. Right now, though, Hurricane Idalia is picking up momentum as it swirls toward the Gulf and west coasts of Florida. With us now is CBS reporter Steve Dresner, who is in Tampa ahead of Idalia's impending arrival. Steve, uh, how bad is it now, if it's bad at all? No, you guys have perfect timing, actually. I, I, well, perfect as far as what's going on right now. Let me take you back. About oh, 2.20 Eastern time, we did have a strong squall come through. That was the first that we're feeling the bands of Adelia, 40-mile-per-hour winds. Uh, the waters kind of came up pretty quickly where we are along the Courtney Campbell Causeway Route 60. It's a major causeway that connects Clearwater to the Tampa area, and we're kind of in the middle, but only took about 10 minutes for the waters to come up. That has moved off. We had some sunny skies, but now the rains is we're talking now. Now another band is coming through. The winds are slowly going to pick up, and the rains have become a lot more steadier. So this is just the beginning, guys, and things are going to start going downhill progressively as we approach the evening hours. And the uh, big concern is storm surge. Explain exactly what that is and what is the danger from that. I think we have a bit of an idea here in California. We just dealt with uh, Hillary, but uh, nothing like, and as a Florida boy, I can tell you, uh, nothing like some of the big hurricanes that have hit uh, my home state in the past. Exactly. And in this area, guys, we're talking about roughly, oh, St. Petersburg up through Tampa. Clearwater is forecasting four to seven feet of storm surge. It's still a lot. And look, you, you know, we, we've, of course, all been monitoring the National Hurricane Center advisories, but still things have been changing hour to hour regarding the storm track. I, I mean, what I can tell you is uh, mandatory evacuations have been in place since yesterday for what they're calling Zone A, the low-lying areas, St. Pete Beach, portions of Clearwater, the beaches around Tampa Bay, Tampa International Airport closed at midnight. All the flights are canceled today, of course. Tomorrow, I can tell you right now, 85% of the flights tomorrow have already been canceled. They're trying to be a little bit optimistic and in resuming service later on tomorrow afternoon just to get equipment in. But that's still up in the air. But again, the pattern still continues to change. So let's see, the uh, governor of that state is, uh, what's his name? Oh, yeah, Ron DeSantis. That Mr. DeSantis. <laughs> yes. How's he handling this so far? I will tell you that, uh, you know, he holds daily updates. And 
especially from my experience in the last uh, you know 15, 20 years covering hurricanes and everything. What I can tell you about uh, Dahlia is that the preparation got underway pretty early in the area. I mean, there are some sub stories, so to speak, like very long gas lines. I got here on Sunday. The line started on Monday, and all we were hanging out with the Florida Highway Patrol for a bit the last few days. And yes, things did get unruly at some of these gas stations, folks playing bumper cars, cutting off each other. FHP officer telling me a few arrests, you know, for assault. So things have kind of gotten out of hand as far as the gas stations are concerned. Grocery stores emptied. You know, we talked to a couple of restaurant owners, and they're going to, a lot of these restaurants and retailers are going to try to stay open until the last minute. And kind of waiting it out and to see how things go tonight. All right, so the governor warning people get to high ground uh, sooner rather than later. If you're in, uh, like, uh, Tampa, uh, how far away is high ground? High ground, it's a little strange, and I only say that, and I'll try to kind of give a, a little local L.A. example, but, you know, it's kind of, um, you know, downtown to L.A. heading out to Santa Monica, and I only use this comparison because if you go Tampa just north, and it's almost the same distance as Santa Monica, ironically, that I'm talking about this from downtown, is Ybor City, just north of downtown Tampa. You're outside the evacuation zone, and a lot of people have kind of moved that way. Now, back to Governor DeSantis a moment. In the last few days, they've been telling people, look, try to head inland toward Orlando, even to the east coast of Florida. And that's what Governor DeSantis has kind of been pushing is folks maybe head towards West Palm Beach, Fort Lauderdale, even Miami area. And um, the, the highways have been crowded, traffic steady on 275 and I-4, especially between Tampa and Orlando, has just been really backed up in both directions. Do, do you think that DeSantis is feeling political pressure? Because, as, as you know, storms have often uh, sealed the fate of you know politicians, depending on how they do or don't handle it. Do you think that the right. pressure is on? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and again, covering a lot of storms, including Irma in uh, South Florida and Miami, and actually spent some time with uh, Governor DeSantis a few years ago when I was um, in Orlando for one of the minor storms. Oh, yes, this is a political uh, event on a lot of different fronts. And you can tell just by some of these press conferences how he's answering response questions, how he's answering questions about, you know, you know, was everyone prepared? Um, you know, I, I will tell you that he did make it a point to say, look, we've already brought crews in from out of town. I mean, that's kind of normal, but yet it isn't normal when he really makes a point of it. So the bottom line is I, I think he does know a lot of eyes are on him on how this is going to be handled, especially if this storm reaches a Cat 3. All right, Steve, uh, thank you so much. Steve Dressner, uh, WTOP CBS reporter there in Tampa, Florida, where they're going to get a big part of that storm as it moves through Florida's uh, Big Bend area. And still to come, a right-wing law enforcement group is telling local sheriffs they should not enforce certain laws. We'll find out what laws and why from the founder of that group. Right now, though, more homeowners in California and across the country are getting rid of their home insurance. Now, the big reason is that it's all so expensive. 
Larry Ferenholtz, retired public defender who lives in L.A., got rid of his home insurance. And Heidi Moore is also with us, an insurance agent with County uh, Country Financial, which is based in Oregon. Thank you both for joining us today. Good morning. So, Good morning. Thank you. Uh, first question, Larry, uh, got rid of your home insurance. Do you worry that you're going to get hit by a big disaster? And if you do, what are you going to do? Well, uh, the, what I, to answer the last part of your question first, what I would do is dip into a 401k. I have a, a county pension to uh, re- relocate if, if the whole house was destroyed. However, um, if you analyze the possible threats and risks, I don't have fires in the area I live in. It's not Topanga Canyon. I don't have floods. So the only things left that I would be protected against would be, uh, I guess, slip and fall injuries in my house. And, of course, earthquake insurance doesn't make sense because you have to pay 10% down payment uh, on any damage. Uh, So I don't know why I would have it. Uh, Larry, do you... uh do you not have the uh, home insurance now because you own your house outright? And, and if not, if you have a mortgage, doesn't the bank require it? The bank does require it with mortgages, but my mortgage ended in ah, 1996. That's what I thought. Okay. That was when I promptly dropped coverage. So I figure over, what, 25-plus years, I've saved 2000 a year, $50,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, Heidi, um, you work with uh, insurance. A lot of people are dropping their insurance, as you hear, because it's so darn expensive and that is a problem that's it's so expensive it's causing people to do without uh, obviously this may not be a good idea if you get hit with disaster you need that insurance to help you recover from it some people obviously can't recover if they get hit with something drastic uh what can the insurance company do and why why are these companies making insurance so expensive in the first place i, I mean it's kind of a loaded question on a lot of different fronts but it's between the natural disasters and uh, climate change and the cost of, you know, inflation with building materials and fixing cars and, you know, whatever the case is, the cost of all of this stuff is really expensive. And the insurance companies are just trying to keep their heads above water because there is a really slim profit margin on, you know, dollars in and dollars out for most insurance companies as a whole. And it's just, it's, it's really hard as an agent because we get blasted with this on a daily basis and trying to explain, but, you know, as agents, what our job is, is to try to find solutions for our clients. And sometimes we win and can find a way to save them a little bit of money, whether it's raising deductibles or checking, you know, for extras that they don't need or making sure their buildings are covered properly or whatever the case is. But sometimes our hands are really tied and we're, it just is what it is. And at that point in time, you can stick with the agent that you're working with, or you can try shopping around and hope that you can find something better. Heidi, are you finding that uh, a lot of your clients or some of your clients who own their properties outright, as as Larry does uh, here in California, are they just saying to you, you know what, we, we've had it, we're not going to pay this anymore? I I don't have any clients like that, no. I, I've not had anybody come and say, hey, my house is paid off. I think I'm going to go ahead and self-insure. And that's really what it comes down to is being able to self-insure. Very few people have that resource um, and that money in the bank where they feel like they can pretty much lose everything and start from scratch. Um, so I, I'm, I'm curious, a, but I'm curious, Heidi, uh, you heard what Larry had to say about his rationale yeah. on why he's decided it just doesn't pay to have uh, uh, home insurance anymore. Is he right? 
I don't think I can say whether he's right or right, right or wrong. It's right for him. And that's really what matters. Yeah. But is there something uh, he, but what I'm getting at is, is there something perhaps he's not thinking of that he should be thinking of in dropping the insurance? Can I jump in for a second? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry that I remember that there's one other possibility, theft, but I've always had dogs. <laughs> okay. Okay. But is there any other thing, Heidi, that perhaps somebody who might be inclined as Larry was and did to drop insurance, maybe they aren't thinking of and they really need to give some more thought to? Uh, yeah, I think so. Because I mean, most of like our house fires, even though we are in a, you know, a state that's prone to fires here as of the last couple of years, two of my last house fires were created by cats. They knocked <laughs> over a lamp or a candle or something like that. And it caused the fire to start. So I think it's not just being in the the path of a wildfire or a path of a flood or you know, earthquake. There's other little things like electrical fires and, you know, other other things, even dog bites. Dog bites are really expensive. And if you don't have the liability in place, I mean, you could get sued for big money. So I think having at least some sort of insurance to cover yourself is extremely important. And again, it's very much a personal matter. You know, but as an agent, I would never advise my clients to drop their policies. All right. Heidi Moore, an insurance agency with uh, Country Financial in Oregon, who uh, let us know that having cats can be dangerous. And also Larry Farinold, a retired public defender living in L.A., got rid of his home insurance. Yeah, I saw you uh, kind of uh, perk up the reaction yeah. when, when he mentioned or when she mentioned actually yeah. that cats could could cause a fire. And I don't put it past cats to have done that on purpose. Well, just tell them not to do that. <laughs> yeah, as if they listen. Just say, don't do not do it. Cat, you know? behave. Right. By the way, tomorrow, uh, L.A. Mayor Karen Bass will be joining us in studio at 1 o'clock for a very special edition of KNX In-Depth. You're listening to KNX In-Depth along with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. The job of law enforcement is to enforce the law. That's obvious whether individuals within law enforcement agree with the laws or not. But there is a growing movement led by what some consider to be a right-wing group that calls on local sheriffs not to enforce federal laws that they feel are either unjust or unconstitutional or both. With us is Richard Mack, the founder of the group, the Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers Association. Mac is also, by the way, the former sheriff of Graham County, Arizona. Thanks for being with us. Well, thanks for having me, Charles. I appreciate it. And uh, uh, I do want to uh, emphasize that while I was sheriff, I sued the federal government and won a case at the United States Supreme Court over the very issue you just brought up. Okay. Uh, And maybe we'll get into that a little bit later. But let me ask you first off, uh, Richard. I said at the top going into you that it's a movement that some people characterize as a right-wing group. Do you accept that characterization? Does that, in your view, describe the membership? No, not at all. Uh, we're just concerned about the country. We're concerned about uh, who has the authority and the jurisdiction uh, to tell sheriffs what to do. Uh, And in my lawsuit, the federal government was trying to compel us and force us uh, to uh, administer a federal regulatory program. And that's the whole issue. They can't do that. And we're not federal agents. Okay. Uh, Let me ask this question. We'll get back to, you know, federal agents, which sounds like an interesting point. But but I want to say just a little bit more about your question. We are absolutely 
uh, not right wing. I don't know where they even come up with that stuff. We are constitutional, just like our name denotes. We want freedom for all people. And we believe that the purpose of all government is to protect individual liberties and civil rights. Okay, so the question I wanted to ask is, uh, on the grounds of the Constitution, uh, you don't want to enforce uh, federal law that you feel is unconstitutional. Uh, Let me just ask you, it sounds like you took your case to the Supreme Court. Uh, Are there some sheriffs, uh, law enforcement in your group that feels that they can decide on the ground uh, what's a constitutional law and what's not, and they can decide for themselves whether they're going to enforce that on constitutional grounds or unconstitutional. Well, each sheriff and each public official, um, believe it or not, and I know this is really a novel idea, but each one has sworn an oath in God's name to uphold and defend the Constitution, and that oath is actually required by Article 6 of the U.S. Constitution. If I intentionally uh, enforce something that violates the Constitution, would I not be violating my oath of office? But why do I take the oath if I don't if I don't have to follow it? But my if question is, who, who decides if it's unconstitutional? How do you how do you judge that? Do you take your case to court and have the Supreme Court decide if it's constitutional or not? And if they rule against you, do you still support that? Well, I already did that, and I won, but but nobody focuses on the case that I won. Nobody says, why isn't law enforcement enforcing my decision and my ruling? It has all sorts of things we should be doing. And if we put liberty first, which we're supposed to do in this country, we'll put the Constitution first, and the supreme law of the land is the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. So if if Congress or a legislature or a state governor or state legislature goes outside the Constitution and just wants to do something politically and make it a law, and it's clearly outside the Constitution and clearly oppresses and abuses the citizens of this country, I have no obligation to go along with that. In fact, quite the contrary. If you look at my Supreme Court case and if you look at history, history says we should not have arrested Rosa Parks. But two officers did arrest her. History would tell us we should not have arrested uh, Martin Luther King 30 times, but we did. And now we're arresting and destroying Amish farmers because they won't do what the USDA says or FDA. And yes, I'm against those regulations superseding the Constitution or the right we all have, especially Amish farmers, because they're getting nailed but, by it. All right, but let me ask you something. The though. pursuit of happiness. Okay, but let me ask the pursuit something. of happiness right, is okay. more important than regulations of Washington D.C. But let me ask you this, Richard: at, at what does there come a point when, whether you're a sheriff or not, your your uh, willingness to uh, or unwillingness in this case to uh, not enforce a particular law because, in your view, uh, it is unconstitutional? When does it? Well, if, wait, 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 why wait. do you say? Why do you say it's my view? I can read the Second Amendment. Okay, stop, stop, stop for a second. Let me let me finish, Richard. Okay. Uh, at what point do you become a vigilante? Well, if you if you call not arresting Amish farmers and not arresting no, Rosa Parks, no, 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 no. that's not, not what I, that's not what I, that King, actually isn't the question, Richard. That isn't I the guess question. Maybe we are. No, no, no. Well. Okay, maybe. I mean, because the question really is, and that's what Rob was getting at, I think, too, in his question to you, is that 
let, let's take any, a law, uh, and and you feel very strongly in the deepest part of your bone marrow, okay, that yeah. it is unconstitutional, and you and you just really feel that way. As a law enforcement officer, isn't it still since that law is on the books? Uh, isn't the proper way to go about it to follow the law and then adjudicate it and have a court decide whether or not the actions that you've now taken as a law enforcement agent was or wasn't constitutional or to get a court injunction so that nothing happens at all, to use your example of Rosa Parks, get an injunction so that no one can arrest her and let the courts decide, is this constitutional or isn't it? Isn't that the way we it's actually, supposed to work? We, we No, no, no. I think your question is really naive. Okay, go because, ahead. Because the courts don't take but 1% of the cases. That I, I realize that, but that doesn't stop people from and, filing cases, does it? But, well, yeah, but I did, and okay. nobody enforces my decision. I tried it their way. And the thing of it is, I know for a fact yeah. that, if, if, that if they make a law like President Lincoln arresting reporters and like that's okay— uh, if they were to arrest you because you're saying the wrong thing, I would defend you. And you would. And there's many reporters who would continue to violate that law because they believe in the First Amendment and they believe in freedom of speech and freedom of the press. And I, as a as a law enforcement officer sworn to uphold and defend the Constitution, uh-huh. I would have to be protecting you, not some stupid okay. law and stupid statute, because the enforcement of stupid laws is the essence of tyranny. And in America, we stand against tyranny. Richard Mack, who is the former sheriff in Arizona and founder of the Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers Association, his group, of, by the way, calling on local sheriffs not to enforce federal laws if the sheriffs believe those laws are unconstitutional or unjust. Richard, uh, let's take it from the examples that you gave uh, back in the uh, 1800s and early mid-1900s and bring it to 2023 right now. Are there particular okay. laws that, that you feel and other sheriffs in your group feel are unconstitutional and ought not to be enforced? Lots of them, of course. Yeah, uh, give me a couple of examples. conflict with the supreme law of the land. Uh, I know what it means when it says shall not be infringed and arresting a law abiding citizen simply for mere possession of a gun, which happened in Liberty County, Florida, a few years back. And the sheriff nullified the arrest made by one of his deputies. That is exactly what we should be doing. And and again, with the Amish farmer, the the, the sheriff should be standing in the way and protecting them. And if we have to wait. And uh, for the court to finally decide whether an Amish farmer can run his own farm without federal interference and and uh, something that he's done according to his own religious beliefs for decades and centuries now, if you take it back a few generations, why would we allow those abuses to occur and to continue until the court, if the court ever does, decide that this man has a right to his own farm, his own land, and his own pursuit of happiness? If we had a government at all three branches of government that would follow and enforce the Constitution, there would be no CSPOA. I wouldn't have this organization. But our government very rarely, especially the federal government, very rarely follows the Constitution. And what they usually do is just side with whoever, whichever political party is in power. No, I don't go for that. Okay, so freedom let's, comes first. Let's circle freedom back. Freedom is first. All right, thanks for all those examples. Let's circle back to what I think the heart of this is, and that uh, that 
you seem a little reticent and want to talk about the gun issue. Uh, you refer to somebody, a law-abiding person arrested simply for having a gun. Can you give me more details on that? Because that would be an interesting case for a, uh, a judge or somebody to order the arrest of someone who was, in your view, a law-abiding person who has broken no law just because he has a gun. What kind of gun are we talking about here, and why would anybody order the arrest of someone who has broken no law at all? Well, uh, he, he had a gun in his pocket, and the officer shook him down, and, oh, he said, you have a gun in your pocket. And he goes, do you have a permit for that? He goes, no, I didn't know I needed a permit for that. He says, well, then you're going to jail. Did so the, does the jail. law require a permit in that in, in that particular case? Because I'm not familiar with the case or where this happened. Well, when it went to court, the sheriff got arrested for nullifying it, and the sheriff was on trial. And the sheriff said, and I'll, I'll say what he said in court, the Second Amendment has to count for something. And the Second Amendment, I will guarantee you, supersedes some state regulation about how you have to have a permit. But that's out it, in the middle but, of nowhere. But here's the issue, and this, this is the heart of the issue that we're all getting at here. Uh, the sheriff decides what's constitutional not the court. I don't find that in the Constitution. I find in the Constitution, if you have a problem with the law, you have the right to uh, address your grievance to the government, to the courts, and have that adjudicated rather than deciding on your so own only, and, and, so being, and being a, and being a self-made judge deciding on the ground what laws are just and which ones are not. That's ridiculous. Why would you wait? I don't. First of all, the sheriff doesn't work for the judicial branch. And if the sheriff takes an oath to uphold and defend the Constitution, why wouldn't he be expected to do just that? So is the sheriff above uh, is, is the sheriff above the court? There are three branches of government that are assigned to do one thing, and that is keep each other in their proper lane of traffic. And if a, if the legislature or the judicial branch go outside, just like I said, you want me to go along with tyranny. You want me to go along with the abuse of the Constitution. You want me to go along with abuse of citizens who have yeah, done but, nothing wrong. But the sheriff, except expect yeah, but, but that Richard, the Constitution yeah. will be enforced. But, but Richard, the sheriff, uh, any sheriff, is 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 not in the executive branch, is not in the legislative branch, and is not... The executive uh, is, branch. Well, executive branch in the sense that, well, uh, yes, I suppose if they're voted in by, by people. He is the executor of the law. Right. And he is required to follow the Constitution first and foremost yes, and the, in so, the execution right, of his and job. The, but, the, but the courts do have veto power over what the executive does. If a court finds that the actions of the executive is unconstitutional. The executive can't decide. I mean, let's take the sheriff issue off the off the table. You keep trying to teach me about going to court. I've been there hundreds of times. Yes, but and I'm not I sure did that... win at the Supreme Court. I won. Well, I'm glad you won. Congratulations, Richard. But it Richard. didn't do anything. Nobody enforces it. But maybe they, they, I would but expect did you, you guys to be saying. But Richard, all is it possible should be enforcing yeah, this? But uh, well, but you keep zeroing in on your own case. Uh, we're trying to expand well, this and talk oh, about. Oh, big surprise! Yeah, well, no, of no, course no, I do. No, but you have. A, but there's a whole organization that you have. Uh, you know that you've created or partly created, right? This kind of. But you're just focusing on one small part of what we talk about and what we do, and the. And the Supreme Court decision right. uh, says unequivocally that we are supposed to, quote, the different governments will control each other. 
that's a double security to the rights of the people. That's a quote from Justice Scalia in the Supreme Court decision. And it's our job to protect the citizens from out-of-control government when they violate the rights of the people. So the other than other than guns, so than your than, than your Supreme Court or anyone else. But it's not the my Supreme Court. It, it's first. our Supreme Court, isn't it? Well, it sure it is. I don't. Well, okay, it's no, ours. It it's is. All it's ours. ours. Right. It's yours. It's mine. But it's when, Rob's. But when any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, we should stand with the people. We should stand for liberty. I don't. I, I don't understand why you guys can't get that liberty comes first in America. If the if the judicial branch to the point of to the point to the point Richard to the point Richard to the point Richard Richard to the point Richard to the point of revolution. Well, we did that once. <laughs> we won. Should we and, do it again? You act like, should we do well, it again? The founding father should have obeyed everything King George should III we do it, said. Should we do it and, again? And, and not oppose it. Well, I, I think if you'll uh, look at some interesting, and we're going to have to go here, I think if you look at some interesting parts of history, the founding fathers uh, faced their own rebellion uh, uh, a couple times uh, in the early days of this country, and they uh, put it down with uh, with great prejudice. Uh, they They felt that revolution that we just had was the one that we were going to have and they weren't going to put up with any other rebellion uh look up the whiskey rebellion of course thomas and, uh, jefferson if we want to go way down in history yeah. he did suggest that from time to time you should have one but right yeah. yeah so in other words our founding fathers were humans yes <laughs> that's a very differing idea that's going to do it for a very interesting edition of uh in depth thank you so much for listening today we're going to be back tomorrow